Okay, I thought that next class we'd talk more about Weber, but also what I would do is I would show you how political party systems work. That's actually worth finding out, all right? And since there's no reading for you to do on that, you just keep on finishing off Weber. Um, what do I talk about? Sure. Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm just going to do a brief presentation of who is Weber, um, talk about his influence from Kant, give the historical context of the lecture, and then talk about the bureaucratic model of the state and uh, the classification Excellent. of authority and then the, uh, the, the dueling ethics. Before you, you launch into it, um, Weber is a German, which means Weber is a Kant. <laughs> when you say to somebody that is brought up in the German tradition, um, when you talk about ethics, Immediately, they begin thinking about Kant. If you brought up in the Anglo-American tradition, the Anglophone tradition, immediately you think of Mill. How can I distribute pleasure in the most ex extensive way possible? Whereas Kant says, let's talk about the maxims governing our actions. Very different outcomes are going to come from those different assumptions about ethics because they're going to influence how politics works out. All right, go ahead. Yeah. So Weber was a German uh, sociologist, jurist, philosopher, and economist. Um, he's uh, notably an anti-positivist, so that means that he, he thinks we should study social action through interpretive rather than purely empirical means, and that means that we try to understand the purpose and meaning individuals attach to their All right, values. hold on, let me explain this here. In German, this is the difference between two verbs, all right? Wissen and kennen. Wissen means I know something in the sense that I know the times tables. Kennen means that I'm acquainted with something. In other words, do you know John Smith? Well, yeah, because I, you know, met him before and we've talked and socialized, so I know him. So Kennen is acquainted? Kennen is, is to be acquainted with. But you don't know John Smith in the sense that you know the times tables. So the Germans are going to naturally make a distinction between the two kinds of knowing things. It's also going to be connected to two kinds of knowledge, what you might call objective and subjective. When you know somebody objectively, you know them the way the census taker knows them. This is their age, this is their family. This is the, their address. All right. When you know them from the inside, on the other hand, you're not talking about the objective facts about them, but rather their subjective qualities. So is this facts and values? No, what this is going to be is uh, subjective knowledge against objective knowledge. In other words, I can objectively describe the way, say, a bullet leaves a gun, F equals MA. Right. But there's no inside of the bullet for me to wonder, hmm, why is the bullet doing that? <laughs> On the other hand, if the bullet, if the gun is in the hand of John Wilkes Booth, then I might plausibly say, well, why is John Wilkes Booth doing that? Because he has an inside? Well, there's a different kind of knowledge that's available to me, which is knowledge of his purposes and his intentions. This, in German, is Verstehen, V-E-R-S-T-E-H-E-N. So when you know somebody as a subject, you verstate them. 
when you know somebody as an object, you vice them, as in vison. This was a big deal in German thought around the turn of the century. How do we know human beings, which is actually a disguised question of what is human nature? Is it purely objective, or is there a subjective component? All right. is, there a, is it purely ateleological, the way our knowledge of amoebas is? Or is there a teleological element to knowing human beings? Because they act for purposes in, a way, in ways that amoebas don't. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll say a few brief things about the influence from Kant, just because I know I'm sure you know a lot. So uh, he studied German idealism with Heinrich uh, Reichert at the University of Freiburg. So that's where a lot of the influence comes from. And you can see this especially at the end um, of the politics lecture. But you know, for, for Weber, reality is essentially chaotic and incomprehensible. And order comes from the way that the mind focuses attention on those different aspects of reality and how the mind organizes its perceptions. But perception is key. So. That's, um, it's so, a German thing to do. <laughs> so, yeah, um, the brief historical context is, so he gives the lecture on January 28th, 1918. Um, this is right after World War I. I mean, the armistice of uh, November 11th, 1918 is just three months away. Then you also have the Russian Revolution going on, so it's just a period of intense upheaval. And, and then you can also see like the Reichstag and all that. It's, it's becoming gradually unhinged, and Weber's very unhappy with the way that they're making different policies in government, governing the, the Weimar Republic. He's a German, so. and they just lost the First World War. Yeah. You bet they're unhappy, <laughs> right? Because this means Germany is not going to get its place in the sun. Point is this. There are two geographic expressions that turn into countries, all right, in 1870 and 71. These places are my history professors were always very keen on describing them as geographic areas, not countries. Uh, Italy and Germany. Right? They didn't unify until 1870, very late. The problem is, when they get to the party, almost all the good stuff is gone. Why? Because the Brits, the French, the Spanish, the Portuguese, and the Dutch have carved the world up. And that's made them hugely important. Why? Because, not because they're intrinsically all that big, but the Netherlands controls, for example, Indonesia, which is ridiculous. I mean, it's a tail wagging the dog. So now, the new German state, under Bismarck, of all people, who's highly militaristic and wants colonies, looks around and says, you know, what's left for us? So in 1890, they partition Africa. It's the last of the continents to be partitioned. And the Germans and the Italians get slices of the pie. The Italians get Ethiopia, Germans get Tanganyika on the East Coast, and they also get Togo and Cameroon, a couple of other places, Namibia on the, on the East Coast, and Tanganyika on the West Coast, rather, sorry. Um, but it's not, it's not enough. In other words, the British have India. <laughs> I mean, come on now. They have the whole blasted country of India. And remember that England is the size of Michigan. <laughs> All right, what's wrong with this picture? All right, so um, when you're thinking of English history, always remember that compared to the US, we're dealing with small areas. All right, 
and uh, they have a vastly disproportionate influence on history because they've carved up the world. But these guys that are linked to the party, right, um, have decided that they want their slice of the pie, and we've run out of continents. They don't want Antarctica, <laughs> right? So the only way to get position is to make war on the people that currently hold colonies. There's nothing else to do, all right? And so uh, in the 30s, they'll start pushing it. This is, I'm talking about the Germans, all right? And the Italians will also, the Italians are, it's even worse for them because they actually get beaten by the Ethiopians. In 1896, the Battle of Adwa. No, uh, uh, what is it, Emperor Mehmet, he's a smart guy like the Japanese. He's an early adopter of the machine gun. <laughs> I really like this. No, there are a couple of places where they immediately see the advantage and they say, look, buy me a, you know, 10 dozen of them. All right. There are other places that let's, say, let's stick with our traditional weapons. So the smart guys made the, the change very quickly. The Ethiopians and the Japanese, strangely enough. All right. That's why the Japanese are players in, in 20th century politics. That's why they're able to participate in the Second World War in a way that China couldn't, because they had already industrialized. It's the only non-Western place that did industrialize, which shows that there's no connection between white skins and wealth and science. It's actually a question of understanding Western science and technology. Um, after they was, I mean, when the Americans show up there in 1854, the Japanese are scared to death because uh, the Americans announced their uh, presence by firing off cannons as a kind of salute. But the Japanese don't know it's a salute. They don't know what the hell that is. But they won't. <laughs> they, want, they want a whole bunch of them, as a matter of fact. Right? Or it's a military aristocracy. They say, look, we've been closed for 300 years. And look at this. We've we got to catch up. So they actually create a special collection of smart guys called the Committee for the Reading of Barbarian Books. <laughs> and they got barbarian books in science and engineering. And by 1900, they're able to kick the ass of the Russians in 1904. Why? Because they have really modern battleships. They have, I mean, they're actually making their own planes. It's the only place outside of Europe or America where they're able to do that. Why? They were early adopters. That's why Japan is a rich country now, whereas most places aren't. Japan underwent the Industrial Revolution and is now living on the gravy. Yeah. Yeah. And with the the land size point, they're actually they have less usable land than even England does. And so right. the the fact that they were able to dominate China during, you know, the World Wars is just another testament to the fact that they industrialized so much earlier. They were on the right end of the gun. That's it's much right. like like you were saying about Jerusalem with their small size compared to um, Pakistan where their technology is so much more advanced even though the other side has thousands and thousands. That's right. Nowadays, technology is the mark of uh, a culture that's going to be competitive and win out. Yeah. All right, go ahead. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then like you also have like you know the Ottoman Empire collapsing, so it's just yeah, lots of upheaval, and um, Weber's trying to give you know some some direction to the chaos, I guess. Um, so the initial innovation is that um, he says the state is not defined by the ends it pursues because this varies so much, and so it's not really a good way of thinking about the state. The way you do want to define the state is by the fact that it has a monopoly in the use of force and that it can delegate that monopoly to anyone else within the state, but it's, it's the one that's doing the delegating. Okay. So. One more word. It is a monopoly on the legitimate yes. use of force, yeah. which makes all the difference, right? 
And the state is no longer an instrument. It doesn't have a telos. You can do lots of stuff with it. Yes. Instead, the state is a locus of power because it has, which is kind of Hobbesian actually. Yes. Which has a monopoly on the legitimate use of force. What this means is, and I think it's correct, that there's no way to avoid violence in human life and in human society. The best you can hope for is to reduce violence, but it never goes away. You always have to be able to coerce because otherwise you can't force adherence to law. Is he saying that the state has or it should have a monopoly? It has. Has, that's Current, it. Yeah. It, it, it's nothing that it should have because it's not teleological. Okay. States it, it no longer has that uh, monopoly, it's no longer a state. That's right. right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then he puts in the, the tripartite classification of authority. Um, this is famous. Um, so there's three, three of them, traditional, charismatic, and then rational legal. You refer to it as just legal. So the traditional, um, so he's talking about why does authority exist or how does it derive its power. So the traditional format is basically, it's always been done this way. This is how our fathers did it and our, their fathers before them. That's, that's, you know, that's what is generally how kings, kings work, for instance. Uh, charismatic is authority from the personal charisma of the leader. So he dominates by the consent of the dominate, dominated because he's you know, popular and well-liked and a good speaker. Or there's a, someone like Muhammad. Yeah, someone, yeah, someone who has unique rhetorical skills. And then legal, um, or rational legal, that's his authority from the law. So the law has to be sort of a, a mostly non-contradictory body that people can you know, understand. And um, the legitimation comes from the people's assent to the bureaucracy. Um, so uh, this is sort of the modern state innovation, and this is how he describes like that modern states going forward are going to primarily use the legal um, system of authority. Um, so then, so this leads him into the sort of the, the, the point of um, the bureaucratization of the state, um, and this system can be subverted by a charismatic leader. And so this is this is why this is a very predictive lecture because he's sort of looking at the problems in the Euro- the current European bureaucratic system, and he's mm-hmm. saying this is very weak. That, you know, good. yeah, and so that so he's alluding to this. So then, then he t- turns to us. Do you need to jump okay. in? Yeah. Uh, so then, then he turns into sort of um, talking about the people who see politics as a vocation. So he says most people have an avocation to politics. That is, they participate occasionally and they pay attention to it, but it's not central to their lives. They're mostly concerned with their own trade, their own you know business and their own community. <clears throat> and politics is a occasional distraction or sort of an occasional thing that you participate in. Um, but some people view it as a vocation for two reasons. They either live off of politics if they need the income from office holding to sustain themselves, or they live for politics because they are interested in the power and the things they can do with that power. And that distinction is not exclusive. People can live for politics and live, live off of politics. And more often than not, unless you are, come from you know, private wealth, you're going to be lit, doing both of them. Um, and then charismatic leaders, this is how they gain power, is because people are, the people who work underneath them are initially attracted to the cause, but they eventually become dependent on the leader for support. So they go from living for politics to living off of the leader and his, his, his power and base of support. Max? Yes. I'm curious, genuinely curious what you would think about this. So he's seeing that the, the two reasons that you would get into politics is money and power. Um, don't you think that some people get into politics because they want the honor of the position? Sure, and like, and, and so that when he says that they're living for politics, it's not just because they're it's a naked power grab. There, there's this idea of you know the ability of it, right? And like, that I have like a cause, like I want to do X, Y, and Z. Right. So there are people who need money, and those who are live, 
so well, sorry, what's the distinction? You live for politics or you live on politics? Off, 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 off yeah. Why well, like yeah, like you're, you need to live mm. off the land, right? You, you you get your money and your support from it. Um, there's also like there's a little bit of a, an outline of Marxist theory of power here. So you get the revolutionary vanguard, but then over time, as you start staffing up the bureaucracy, you get a lot of people who live off. So this is his point about the Russian Revolution is that even as there's you know they say it's revolutionary, they say that all these big things are changing, but really you're just changing who's running the bureaucracy. You're not actually changing the That's fundamental a deep point. Yeah, right. It, this is a counter-revolutionary theory because what you get when you have a revolution is you move from one bureaucracy to the same bureaucracy. <laughs> right? Nothing fundamentally changes. Because yeah. you can't fundamentally change things in a year or 18 months unless what your fundamental change is exterminating the population, which in fact can be done and has been done. Yeah. Um, yeah, as, as a... As, as Romans just got the populace to govern themselves. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's a David Byrne at the Talking Heads that same as it ever was. You know, it's, <laughs> that's right. Right. It it's, exactly. Um, and then, and then he also makes a side point that I just thought was interesting. He's 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 like, why are lawyers so effective in these systems? And it's because lawyers, their job is to plead the case of their clients, and so they are thus sophists. You know, they make the weak case the strong just by virtue of their rhetoric, and they're dispensable. That's a key point: is that they can move between their own private practice and public office easily in a way that like a doctor can't. Like their their skills are not as easily transferable, so he's sort of saying like why do lawyers do so well in this modern system is because they're uniquely designed to function well in this system. So that's, that's very interesting. Um, yeah. It's worth considering that uh, different kinds of regime tend to produce different kinds of ruling elites. One of the great points that was made in the 20th century by Bill Gates, and because he, he he would you know has contact with uh, these types. He said, whenever he goes to uh, China and meets legislators, they're all engineers. He says, when I go to Washington and meet legislators, they're all lawyers. No wonder we have so many laws. (laughs) In China, they can count, and they don't have nearly so many laws, and they wouldn't obey them if they had them anyway. So a very different outlook, the engineering as opposed to the legal outlook, a lot hangs on that. Yeah, yeah. Just it, it, interesting point with this too is that if you have been following the news of last night, the Iowa caucuses are just a giant, you know, mm-hmm. kerfuffle. Like they can't. You know, apparently, we can't even count the votes. You know, um, <laughs> you know. So there, there's a whole lot of points to be made there. But long story short, the reason we keep a lot of these ar- archaic systems is because lawyers are good at navigating archaic systems. And engineers would be like, "Well, this is stupid. Why would that?" That's a happens? really good point. Yeah. Here's one of the concerns. I mean. You know, of course, the disputed election of 2000 with the hanging chads and all that idiot crap. Um, one of the real dangers is that in the next election, the actual vote will fall within the margin of error. Why is that? Why? Because there's a margin of error in any practical activity, as in, say, casting and counting millions and millions, or say 100 million votes. And so, suppose that they're within, I don't know, 20,000 votes. That's a tiny fraction of 100 million. And it falls within the margin of error. My fear is that one or both will claim to be president. Well, that would be interesting. Well, they actually tried that in 2000. They came very close to it. But this is something that should have been addressed a long time ago and hasn't been. Why? Because lawyers are good at navigating archaic ways of doing things. 
I mean, there's got to be a way. Look, if they can do blockchain to make sure that financial transactions are uh, secure, why can't they do that with voting? I don't understand why this hasn't been done. It must serve the interests of some politicians, and God knows. Um, I don't put much past them nowadays, but I don't see why that hasn't been taken care of. That's that's a real worry. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, also, yeah, with that, uh, I was just thinking about it. So the problem with Iowa last night was that they had this app that was supposed to report all their data, and then the app doesn't work. So it's sort of a Silicon Valley-vacation <laughs> uh, of, of, of a system that's, you know, like, there's a reason the Vatican doesn't use apps when we're picking a new pope. They use they put the, the paper on the string, and you count the string, you know. But it's it's this sort of, like, naive, misplaced trust in technology when, you know, counting is not that hard. You could literally do this with paper. Well, why do we have trust in technology? I would have thought that the end, if we had engineers rather than lawyers doing this, wouldn't they say, why don't we test this out yeah. before we actually have the call? <laughs> you think, right? You know, they said, no, there's lots of lawsuits going to come out if we don't test it. <laughs> you know, we can be screaming at each other for years. This is what happens when you tell liberal arts majors to learn the code. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Okay. So, um, the other big thing is the um, the dual dual ethics system. So he has the ethic of ultimate ends, or you know, related the ethic of teleology. So he he thinks this is bad that your politics should not solely be an ethic of ultimate ends. So he uses the example of equalizing wealth. But there's lots of different things you could put in here. He says that look like these are all sort of you, you when you get so obsessed with this goal um, that you'll you're gonna it's it, it leads to demagoguery. It leads to you know sort of the the destruction of these systems and that. It's a bad thing for modern bureaucratic states and leaders within those bureaucratic states to pursue. Um, he, he prefers the ethic of responsibility, because, which basically means that you should aspire to run the bureaucracy well. Um, so it's sort of a, the, the, the leader and the legislator is in service to the bureaucracy, and the bureaucracy is in service to the people. And so it's trying to sort of separate the leaders and the people a little bit. But, when was the last time bureaucracy was in service of anything but itself? <laughs> <laughs> That's it, sort of an interesting claim that it serves the people. And this is important because it, it, well, Weber isn't just saying that like you should not have any purpose whatsoever as a legislator. He's just saying that it should be tempered by the ethic of responsibility. That uh, is, yes, indeed. Now stop and think about what he's smuggling in here. All right? Weber is a German. All right? So when you say ethics to a German, that means Kant. So far, so good. All right. Now, that is the ethic of moral conviction. It tells you what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. And it creates clear, bright, moral lines. And it gives you a series of yeses and noes. Now, there's a problem here. All right. It's the nightmare cases that we hear about when we study Kant, particularly the foundation of the metaphysics of morals. All right. And Kant, because he's a philosopher, has the luxury of making sense. He says, no, I'm not putting up with any crap. I'm not adulterating it. This is a categorical imperative. Don't give me any nonsense. The rest of us are kind of uneasy, all right? Let's look at some of the nightmare cases. Imagine, all right, that I can get some great benefit. It's a heteronymous benefit, but it's a great one. Let me say, let me say, let's see, uh, I can somehow flip a switch and no one under the age of 10 years old will ever get cancer again. So I can abolish pediatric cancer. Now be careful because you're getting all heteronymous here. You sympathetic pe people whose feelings have no moral valence. <laughs> right? 
Of course. But in order to do so, you have to tell a lie. You have to say that today is Wednesday. Now, you know perfectly well it's not Wednesday. Okay. The, the ethic of responsibility, that's John Stuart Mill whispering in your ear, don't be a confident idiot. <laughs> all right. Saying, look, if you decide to get all holy on us and decide not to say today is Wednesday, all those children are going to suffer and die, and that's on you, you wicked creature. John says, I'm not a wicked creature. I'm the only rational guy around, because all I do is employ the CI. <laughs> you want to get all heteronomous? It's because you're gooey and soft. Now, sane people look at this saying, that's badly crazy. <laughs> I think the best answer to this is actually found in Scripture, and this is worth considering. That wonderful and very important line of Scripture where it says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Well, here's a score. Moral rules were created to serve human interests, human beings. Human beings do not exist to serve moral rules. It's very Aristotelian. Well, no, it's actually very Christian because one of the legalists <laughs> yeah, from yeah. the temple says, "What about the guy whose son is in the is in the pit and it's and it's the Sabbath? You know, about to to fish him out because that's work." Jesus says, "Don't be stupid, get him out." And the answer is wise because the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. If the you know if the secret police are coming for your friend and they want to know where he is, don't be an idiot and say, well, I have to get all Kantian or I'm going to be silent or some ridiculous answer like that. You say he's over there. Right? I mean, don't stop this stuff. Right? This is not a genuine quandary. Not if you are at all sane and in touch with the world. Now, the problem is this. What that means is you have adulterated Kantianism. There's a little asterisk at the end of the CI saying, unless it's an awful idea. <laughs> right. Which means that it's busted. We're done. <laughs> In other words, you can't ha it stops being the categorical imperative once it says, well, unless something else looks like a better idea. <laughs> right. Which is what this is going to amount to. But, it's a partial imperative. But <laughs> Vapor's point is exactly that. Don't be an idiot. I mean, in other words, this is the ethic of responsibility. You, as a politician, are not allowed to keep your hands clean. Grow up. You want to save your soul, go to a monastery. But you want to go into politics and accept the fact that, yeah, you'll know what's right and wrong, and God willing, you'll do what's right and wrong when you can. But the fact of the matter is, if you're responsible for making a choice between announcing that today is Wednesday and having lots and lots of children get cancer, you take the ethic of responsibility, you say goodbye to Kant, and all you need is any deviation from Kant, and you can kiss the whole thing goodbye, because that's the way Kantian ethics is. Yeah. So we, we, we have a German criticizing Kant? Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly the point. They're all, uh, they're all going to be doing it. The uh, Vienna Circle? Um, these guys are... with the Vienna Circle? No, no. Okay. But uh, the, the Vienna Circle are a group of, of scientific philosophers. And then what they've done is gotten Hume, and they've gotten all dogmatic about it. All right, that's what we're going to see when we get uh, A.J. Ayer. But for now, um, what he's saying is, look, in practice, 
real right and wrong, real ethics is Kant, you know, everybody knows that because the Germans are right. But, all right, although the Germans are right and Kant has given us the universal moral law, if you follow it, then you're not suited to being involved in politics because that's idiotic. There are going to be many cases in which you do the wrong thing knowingly and you say, boy, it's a good thing I'm not stuck with Kantian regularly. Right. What this means is, you remember that what Plato, what Plato was working on? Reconnecting politics and ethics? Well, what this means is that Weber just drove a wedge between the two. Politics is not ethics writ large. Instead, you have reasons of state. It's kind of Machiavellian. Yeah. So the remember the allegory of the cave when they turn around and see that the, the shadows they've been watching have been projected by people pulling images across the light. Mm -hmm. Reading Weber for me is like seeing those people with the, the idols casting their shadows on my brain. He knows what he's doing. No, it's not that. It's that, especially the, the science, but also with the politics, this is what I was indoctrinated in in high school. This theory of the, of the way that politics and science should work is what I was indoctrinated in high school. So this is, it, 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 it's kind of a collection of all my least favorite Enlightenment ideas, um, or most of my least favorite Enlightenment ideas being shoved down my... Uh, 18 year old throat against his, yeah, it's just. Sorry. Okay, so you were indoctrinated with this in high school. Mm -hmm. Well, when we look at science as a vocation, um, we're going to find out that he thinks that it's wrong for teachers to indoctrinate students. He's very indoctrinated about that. Well, he is, but we're at a Catholic school, and I think that many people would defend the proposition that teachers and teachers are supposed to indoctrinate children. Well, I, I agree. So they would, but the, and Weber would pretend that he's not indoctrinating students. But like the number of value, like he says, a lecturer should not make value statements, and then he makes like a dozen in the next couple paragraphs. So you want teachers to indoctrinate students? No, I want teachers to help me towards exiting the cave. Okay. Um, is there any kind of literal component to that? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's called the divided line. Okay, well, I mean, that's an oldie, but a goodie. <laughs> we'll come back. A, a slightly uh, adjusted a divided line. Well, a slight adjustment, dropping a, a notch with that. Yeah, okay. There we go. In modern science, we're good. Yeah? I was just thinking about indoctrination. It's a very subjective term, it feels like. That's interesting. Because. Tell us the part of theology. Because indoctrination is subjective. <laughs> I mean, it's just talking about in school indoctrinating, and like in high school we're indoctrinated or whatever to a more liberalistic sense of ideals, but in college they're teaching us something else. So like it feels like we only use the term indoctrination when we're talking about something we don't like. Mm. That's interesting. I don't know it just the, feels the, like the problem with your, no, your yeah, alternative to indoctrination in one thing or another is to try and spontaneously create values. Which Problematic for youngsters. Mm, problematic I mean, for anybody. You could say that parents indoctrinate their children when they raise them. Right. So I, I just think that the whole the distinction between someone who just purely teaches facts and someone who indoctrinates is a false distinction. Can you I teach morality though that way with pure facts? No, you can't. I don't think so. That actually is a false distinction. <laughs> I don't think there's facts which you can teach and values which are subjective. Mm. I think uh -huh. that both are something. 
that we gradually come to a deeper and deeper knowledge of. Mm -hmm. So would you have parents teach their values and then the kids learn them by themselves the later calling on? calling them values means that they've already won. Huh, that's great. <laughs> right? You already assume that there's a distinction between facts and values. Mm -hmm. It's not clear to me that there is. Right, well, okay. But, uh, well, hold it. Facts are not necessarily virtues. This is so instead of values, I would say virtues and vices. And okay, values and virtues. And then instead of facts, I would say Okay, is there one univocal source of uh, judgments about good and evil? No. Nope. Well, if you're Catholic, there shouldn't yeah. be. <laughs> but if you're Christian, also, the there should be. Yeah. As a matter of fact, if you're a monotheist, there should be. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, how then? Do we account for the wide plurality of rejection of these self-evident uh, They don't seem very self-evident to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to open the can of worms. Mm -hmm. Are they self-evident or not? How about this, though? Um, what he's doing is employing Hume's fork. It's the difference between is and ought. All right, think of the end of the inquiry concerning human understanding. Mm -hmm. If it's deductive or it's inductive, or get rid of it. All right? And remember when he talks about the, the is-ought distinction? Well, that's what we got here. Um, what is, all right, is the domain that you have to work with, but that's a domain of means. What you're what trying, what the ends you're trying to achieve, that's not derived from any rational source. Again, he's giving giving everything away to him, right? So the fact that people think that there's a distinction between facts and values is just humor revived and radicalized. It's a strange thing that's it's crossed the, the English Channel, and now it's among the German system builders. So, uh, part of uh, the, the fact value thing seems to me there there, there are all sorts of problems that I have. One is, is that it isolates human knowledge into a single into a single moment. In a single moment, you can know a, a little detail about a thing, and you can know a value about a thing. But over the course of a life, I don't think you would say you could know a value about a thing. You might feel right. You can, and you can feel a value in a moment. So you can feel an emotional response in a moment, and you can feel and you can know a fact about a thing or a certain detail about a thing in a moment. But human knowledge, as Socrates showed us all the way back then, is a dialectical extended over time process, which we come to... Uh oh it sounds like you know who. A dialectical extended over time process. Oh, shh, All right. Is that the Marsh reference? It's Hegel. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you just backed your way in. I did back, okay, I, I did... Hegel is not completely wrong. <laughs> Well, nice. that's a really good <laughs> <laughs> Since this entire two years has organized around that. Uh, yeah, we're wasting our time. Disgusted, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll grant you Hegel. Hegel is right. It is an extended over time dialectical process, and it is something that corporate personalities work on. Um, what I would say against Hegel is that it's not all progress. There's also. Uh, I think he agrees. You think he agrees? Yeah. Okay. So that, that would be something we're looking at. Okay. Uh, I, I need to read more hate. Yeah, we all do. Cross uh, <laughs> <for our> sin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so, but, 
Just looking at the individual's life, the individual is born in relative ignorance. I mean, this is the confession to you. Born in relative ignorance, you, you encounter emotional responses to things and certain details of knowledge about reality, but most of that is unformed and incomplete and insufficient, and over the course of a lifetime, you come to a deeper and deeper knowledge of what is in fact good and what is in fact true. Okay. And what Plato tells us is that ultimately those two things converge. Okay. And if they don't ultimately converge, then we're in huge trouble. Okay, two things. One, it's not clear to me, and it's the opposite, I think, actually, I suspect true. Um, my fear is that love and reason do not perfectly overlap. And that's the problem of the human condition. Um, um, God is reason and God is love, so. Okay, well, he's also quite distant from my world or understanding of it. You know, it's, I, I love God. So but mean, I, what, what, I, what I mean by that is that ultimately they do over, they do perfectly here, or else God is who he says he is. That, I, I, I'm very reassured by that. But it doesn't, if I would ever find out before in, I die. Right, no, in, in, this, in this veil of tears, they won't perfectly overlap. Yeah, and that's actually what I, what I regard as the fundamental problem of the human condition. It's the fundamental problem of the fall. Right. I mean, uh, the problem is, is that not every reasonable thing is good, and not every good thing is reasonable. <laughs> All right. Um, believing that a uh, man on a cross resurrected, I mean, there's nothing reasonable about that. I mean, it's a matter of faith, and you can't. It's faith is indispensable. But uh, consider, you, you all know Homer. Consider the the killing of Astanax. Far-seeing Achilles says, "Look, the kid's going to grow up. He's going to come back. Payback. He's going to kill every one of us. The smart thing now is to kill him. He's a toddler." So what? All they, what they did was reason their way into murdering a child. Now, if you want to increase that a hundred thousand fold, you can just as easily reason your way into Hiroshima. Now, Hiroshima was a terror weapon directed primarily towards civilians. We knew that there were no military targets there. But there were lots of good reasons why we should use it. Nonetheless, it's a moral evil. It didn't have to be done, and if you can avoid vaporizing 100,000 people and still win the war, you really ought to do that. I mean, I was very moved when I found out that Eisenhower was against the use of the atomic bomb. He said, number one, we shouldn't take that genie out of the bottle. Number two, just blockade them. They'd have, they'd have nothing to eat. <laughs> they have no petroleum. It's not a hard war to win. So, you know... Yeah, just like the, the whole thing about how, like, you know, you and I, the U.S. would have lost a million soldiers on land road. It's, it's, that, that's, it's there's no need yes, to, yeah. to invade, yeah, right? Exactly. But yeah. the point is this reason can lead you to moral abominations. I mean, you're reasoning your way into killing a child or 10,000 or 100,000 children. See, doesn't that, that at some level, uh, uh, violate, incorporate some concept of one equals one and it deals with that? I mean, what, am I, what I mean by that is, if it is in fact evil to uh, commit a moral abomination, does that not preclude the point of fact that arriving at that conclusion is reasonable? That's Machiavelli. Let's just take it back to, to Astonax for a second. It makes perfect sense if your goal is survival, not to get killed you know, 30, 40 years from now. Mm -hmm. um, but if you replace that end with something else, then suddenly that reasoning changes, so how does that preclude? Oh no, I mean, if, if the Greek heroes decided they wanted to go to Christian heaven, I don't think they would do that. Well, right, so that would cease to be a reasonable thing to do. Right. 
uh, provided you believe in Christian heaven and the afterlife. But there's a whole bunch of people in Christian cultures, like members of the mafia, that don't show any belief in that sure. and will kill you for a given sum of money. Uh, I don't see how the. So they, well, my point is, their moral judgments will be um, reasonable given their heteronomous desires. Now, as Christians, we don't want to murder children, right? But it is certainly possible as a dubious Christian or as a, uh, a seeming but not genuine Christian to decide to do things like that. So, Alexander, I think, in a way, I'm making a platonic point and Spectre is making what I call a Kierkegaardian point, <laughs> which is that the platonic point is that in the, in the eternal ideals, in God himself, rationality and love meet perfectly. But the Kierkegaardian point is that we're not there yet. Uh, there's no the only true Christian is Christ, uh, and so in this veil of tears, we will always be running into situations where our limited rationality and our limited love don't perfectly overlap. No, I think that, that it's perfectly fair to attribute inadequacy to the human condition, but I, uh, I think we should try, try to avoid making false statements along the way. Um, That's a good thing. Absolutely. What false statements do you have in mind? Uh, such as it's reasonable to kill a child as dying because. There's a set of actions there, or in any other comfortable situation, is directed towards a goal. In other words, because we're dealing with persons, we've, we've figured the telos in, pr practically. Yep. Whether it's there or not, practically we've incorporated telos, mm -hmm. in which case... There are good teloses and there are bad teloses. Right. And that's something, a judgment of reason that can be made, to some extent. In other words, um, how exactly are the two divorced? Well, here's the idea. Um, if there's a, a single monotheistic God, then we know we can appeal to the universal mind of God to find out which are the good teloi and which are the bad teloi. But Greek heroes don't have that to appeal to. So there's just how it looks to them. And they ask themselves, do they want to settle down and grow old without being impaled? Or do they want to always wonder, when is Hector's son Astonax going to show up and kill me? And they do the calculation, and it's a Humean calculation of which of these things am I going to enjoy more. And uh, they said, I'd like to be anxiety-free uh, senior years. Um, it, it, it seems to me that's not irrational in the sense that the means are adequate to the ends. You, I think, are right in saying that the end of uh, Killing, or that the means of killing a child is a wrong one, but it's it's only one that you can object to if you have the monotheistic God. Can we reason about ends? Can we reason about ends? Uh, depends who you talk to. Hume says no. Kant says yes. Well, I don't. I don't reject that people disagree about it, um, but I mean there are people who disagree about whether or not the Earth is excellent. Really, to Excellent. So, so whether people agree or disagree about something doesn't tell us about whether it's true. Fair enough. And yet, if we're going to go for the idea that uh, these judgments that people make about, say, greater and, and worse, or better and worse ends, um, how at some point we're going to have to allow for some degree of, of uh, subjective choice that isn't going to be governed by that by rationality. In other words, um, I don't think that there's a that there's a rational answer to what's the prettiest color. I don't think there's a rational answer to questions like, uh, what's the tastiest vegetable? And I also don't think you can completely keep uh, Dionysius chained. 
Oh, that, that's, I hadn't wanted to let him out yet. <laughs> yeah, I see that, and I don't like it either. <laughs> In that rational sense of killing Asenach, wouldn't you just be looking at the consequences there and not of the actual act? So, like, wouldn't it not that's be not. rational to kill a child? Even even though, like, the Greeks predate, like, the whole idea of eternal law and all mm-hmm. this stuff, if, if it's true about eternal law, wouldn't we know that... Wouldn't you know... Natural law internal, would you know that it's not reasonable to kill a child in that Okay. Well, it might be then that the, that such a thing is not operative and doesn't exist in the ancient Greek uh, tradition. Mm-hmm. But they may deny that any such thing as the natural law, the eternal law exists. But, God, but if it is true. Well, think about it this way. Odysseus had to convince them to kill Asenax. They didn't want to. Well, no, no, no. That's because they didn't have the wit to think it up. <laughs> Right. I mean, remember who you're dealing with, Achilles. Uh-huh. I will kill him. Let him come. <laughs> right. uh, no, that's not going to work. Um, he, he, they, they assented rather readily. Right? More readily than uh, I think makes me comfortable with human nature. Well, how about this? The, the, the story isn't told as a celebration of Odysseus. No. It's no, told it's as the, the horror of Odysseus. So the... Um, the, the that natural law sentiment, whether or not they had the concept of it. I mean, we read the, the um, uh, not, not Oedipus, but his daughter. Um, Antigone. She appeals to what is essentially natural law in That's opposition true. to the state. Whether or not they have the concept, the, the moral impulse is already present. I think if we're going to pin good and evil and all this stuff on people having right moral impulses, that's a bad bet that we're going to lose. No, so no, no, I, 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 impulse is the wrong word, but the the ability to inchoately recognize the moral demands that reality places on us. Uh, I, I don't even know that people need to accept that. I think what, what we do need to acknowledge is that there's one tradition, uh, the, the Greco-Roman tradition, and it's wholly incompatible uh, with the Christian tradition. Well, I wouldn't say as, that. As long as we the Homeric tradition is wholly incompatible, but not the let, let, well, just on a get to the point though, which is as long as we maintain non-contradiction, of course, then we've got a unity of truth, and one of those we have to dispense with. Which aspects? There's no such thing as one person, except unless except except for the magisterium, there is no body that has uh, has no false statements mixed in with their truth statements. Homer, as much as Plato dislikes him still has some important things to tell us. Sure. I'm, I'm not going to deny that. It just it seems that um, uh, if we're going to talk about uh, reasoning about ends and people not knowing the right ends, that in no way precludes their being there. And I think we certainly have the freedom to say that the Greeks are just completely wrong about what's good in life and what you should pursue, and that somebody else is right. Okay. That's actually a very, art, a very powerful argument. Very, that's very persuasive. All right. Now, the difficulty is is that the the world we live live in, the contemporary civilization here in the advanced industrialized countries in America and the West in general, um, we're largely post-Christian. So this is something that I found fascinating, Weber. He said he compared the modern situation to a polytheistic situation, mm-hmm. except we're polytheists without magic. Yes. Or we're polytheists with technology, perhaps. Right. Um, or well, technology takes the place of magic. Right, but you're right. Um, we don't we don't have a common agreement as to the one unified good. Right, uh, maybe Puritan New England did briefly, but since we became a pluralistic society with all, and we're much more like Imperial Rome. We've had influences from everywhere, 
and from everything. And we have people that think everything is opposite. How do you govern such a heterogeneous people? It's an interesting and difficult problem. You can, pay, you can do whatever religion you want so long as you pay tribute to Caesar. Well, okay. I mean, you can go for something like, like political minimalism. Right? We're going to mess with you minimally, and then you can all do pretty much whatever you want, so long as you pay your taxes and you know, don't punch anybody else in the nose. Maybe that liberal solution will work for a while. The problem is, is that our people have become so heterogeneous that they find even toleration, toleration of each other hard now. Well, the revolutions of the plague of the Roman Empire constantly, they required increasingly harsh barbarism on the part of the Roman state in order to keep things under control. Yeah. So they, either we come into a situation where there actually is, a, there comes to be a unifying cultural religion of some sort, or we end in, uh, the, the, the unity is split up. I we end up with Corsair. Yes. No, or I mean, change their meaning. Right, but yeah, what's happening right now, right? But those of you who didn't take the Greeks, you really should have. And the reason why is I can say stuff like Corsair, and we go, oh yeah, that. Um, the call, I mean, it's a. Uh, it's about uh, yeah, it's about uh, a society coming apart, and breaking apart, and them destroying each other. All right, that's something that we have to be very careful of. And for that reason, I am very inclined to extend. Uh, a hand to people I disagree with that I regard as sane. In other words, my, my, uh, the bar for me has gotten so low with politicians now. If they're not crooks and they're not crazy, I'm saying, well, okay, I, mean, I could conceivably vote for you. Just don't tell me that the moon landing was a hoax or you know, some kind of nut right, belief. Because there's a fair number of politicians that do believe that crazy. Did you see that Elizabeth Warren intends, if she's elected president, intends to have a transgender child interview the Secretary of Education. It's mind-boggling. What does that even mean? Well, the, the point is that Betsy DeVos is anti-transgender kids or something, and so mm -hmm. this new, the new Secretary of Education will be a public, former public school teacher who, ha, who has to pass this interview test, I guess. It's like... With a deeply disturbed adolescent. Yeah. <laughs> Where do I sign on? No, one of my friends gave a great analogy to this. He said, look, it's like a, the 2020 election is like a, Elizabeth Warren drives up in a Volvo and says, get in, we're going to woke town. And the problem is I don't want to go to woke town because you're a dangerous, crazy woman. So I'm not getting in. Mr. Trump shows up. And uh, he's doing donuts on the front lawn. <laughs> There's a half-empty bottle of tequila in the front seat. And he says, get in, I'll take you wherever you want to go. <laughs> I'm thinking, good God, no, I'm not getting in the car with you. For a completely different reason. In one case, I'm going the wrong place. In this case, I don't know where this is going. <laughs> I mean, I can't tell what's going on here. It's bound to be better than Woke Town. Well, around a tree. I mean, no, but not necessarily. He starts a war he doesn't intend to to pick. I mean, you know, lots of bad stuff could happen here. All I want is an adult in the room. <laughs> Not asking for, for much. You know, just to be someone who hasn't stolen anything, right? And who isn't visibly crazy. Like saying, hmm, I bet America really liked the idea of having a deeply messed up adolescent decide who's going to be Secretary of Education. Said, That's going to get a wide variety of approval. 
Yeah. Yeah, a more subtle version of this same phenomenon is that the Warren campaign always refers to Latino voters as like Latinx. Yeah. Because that's the most like that's the woke way of referring. Yeah. But I think it's something like when when they polled Latinos and they were like. What, what do you prefer to be called? I think 98% said that they prefer to be called Latino or Latina, depending on if you're a guy or a girl, because they're just, you know, they're normal they people. They right? are guys or girls. Right, and, and so, it, so it's like, it's just this huge disconnect between, like, you know, a small section of very progressive, very, very advanced, like, activists, and then everyone else is like, you know, what the hell would you do? Like, well, no, imagine the whole Spanish yeah. language is masculine and feminine. Right. There's no... <laughs> and, and you've already got people argue, like, are, Academics arguing that that should be yeah. destroyed, like in it's the, like all the our own languages. heritage. Don't tell us, you know. It's like right. Okay. And it occurred to anybody that there's no point in arguing what to call something. Um, I mean, there, there, there is if you're in Crusader. Yeah, right. Or because you. Well, there also it, there is if it's a social. If you live in a social constructed, social constructivist reality. Exactly. So the, the thing the, is that you have to debate about words because. You have to be able to call vice virtue. If you can't call vice virtue, mm -hmm. then the whole thing falls apart. Yeah, like it's, it's, it's there's a lot of Foucault here. Like if, if reality is only in speech, then what we say matters enormously. But if reality is outside of us, then you know. And like, how about this this idea, the postmodern idea that reality is in fact speech? That's what happened to idealism when it got transformed into a thisworldly thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is just more idealism, which goes all the way from Plato to the Germans. In other words, things and words are changed in their order. Words come first. I mean, we can deal with the things later, but the world is made out of words. Yeah, so I mean, that's the forms. Can we know things that we can't explain in words? Yes, thankfully. Um, depends on how you want to gloss no. <laughs> right? Um, for example, if I were to ask you, why have you fallen in love? You may know why, but you may not be able to explain it fair enough. But if you were to ask, uh, how do you know that uh, the decimal expansion of pi is not uh, an integer? Well, that's a very different kind of knowing that you can actually demonstrate. Right? One is subjective, one is objective. You can canon things that you can There we go. Actually, yeah, that's exactly it. Go ahead. Anything more on, on this? Yeah, there was, I, I did want to talk about the last, Good. like the last couple paragraphs, because they're just really, they're like the, this last page basically mm -hmm. is just it's incredible. Um, so, the, he, he has a point, like in the in the third to last paragraph, he says that like, let us debate this matter once ten more, ten, once more ten years from now. Unfortunately, for a whole series of reasons, I fear that by then the period of reaction will long since uh, broken over us. So he's sort of, you know, he's making a prediction here, and he's only about two years off with, you know, the rise of Hitler in Germany. But yeah. um, it's a very, very prescient point. So and then he, what was the point? Uh, basically that uh, reactionary politics are coming to Germany and are coming to the continent at large. So that's a, right. that's a hugely correct point. Um, and then he, he quotes um, Shakespeare's Sonnet 102, and he says that basically, like, this is not going to happen. Uh, the, the line is, our love was new and then but in the spring, when I was wont to greet it with my lays, as Philomel in summer's front doth sing, and stops her pipe in growth of riper days. So in other words, riper days are not coming. And he says, this is like the, one of the most famous lines from the whole reading, where he says, you know, not summer's bloom lies ahead of us, but rather a polar night of icy darkness and hardness, mm -hmm. no, matter, no matter which group may triumph externally now. And like, okay, that's yeah. incredible. Because there are real communists and real fascists on the continent, yeah. all right? 
And what that means is, is that you have genuine genocidal extremes fighting it out. In, well, you get a very different result in America, which has a two-party system. Instead of getting fa a fascist or a Leninist, what you get is FDR. And he's actually the best thing that happened to us. It could have been a hell of a lot worse. We have an alternative party. And he says, look, I don't have any particular ideology. We'll try a bunch of stuff. We're Americans. So we'll pragmatically see what works. And, uh, you know, what doesn't work, we'll get rid of. Now, they did this for 10 or 12 years, and they weren't able to figure out how to solve this problem. They did not solve the problem of the Great Depression. Nobody knew how. Um, what solved the problem of the Great Depression was the mobilization for World War II. Industrial policy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So Weber is deeply uh, insightful yeah. towards the end here. He sees what's coming, and it's bad, yeah. Professor, the, as you'll explain tomorrow, there are internal system, there, there are systematic reasons, uh, sorry, um, reasons having to do with the structure of the political systems in Europe and America that right. Uh, tend towards extremism in Europe and tend towards moderation in America. That's right. Do you think that in the modern setting, those that inbuilt tendency in America is slowly being pulled apart? No, I actually don't. Um, my view, and you can hold me to this in 2020, I believe Bernie Sanders is going to get the nomination. I think it's going to be a rout. I think that Trump is not only going to win, but he's going to win big. It'll be the biggest Republican win if it's Sanders since uh, McGovern in 1972. And the more, I mean, realistic Democrats see that, and that's why they're going crazy. But I think Mr. Sanders is going to win this time because there won't be Hillary Clinton around to pull the strings behind the scenes. And uh, that would give America a real choice. And once America sees that real choice, um, they're going to find that there aren't really all that many socialists in America. Um, and uh, no, I think that Mr. Trump is, like, is likely to win big, and that just shows you how preposterous the Democrats have been in response. Trump is actually a moderate in comparison. Well, no, no, I wouldn't go there, because Mr. Trump doesn't have a political ideology, so I wouldn't call him moderate or radical. He doesn't really believe in anything except Mr. Trump. Right? And he makes stuff up as he goes along. So that's that's the do and donuts part. Like I don't, he's so unpredictable. I don't know what he's going to do. That's why I couldn't vote for him, right? I couldn't vote for the other one because I, I see what you're going to do, and I don't want a part of that. I look at you, and no, I think not. Sober up, and you, you, you won't. No, he's a seventy year old spoiled child. Right, exactly. So I mean, no one will work for him. He's, he, how many how many secretaries of state has he gone through so far? He's on his third, and then right, yeah, in three years. Yeah, yeah. Good God. So, no, I mean, we're in bad shape here. But, uh, you know, I, I fear that the country I'm leaving, my children, is not the one I'd hope to leave them. On the other hand, look, maybe we'll find some reasonable centrist middle ground, you know. No, it's not impossible. Look at somebody like Bloomberg, all right, who's, who won't, said, look, I won't even go on the stage and debate these yokels. All right, I have a billion dollars. I'm going to run my own campaign. I don't want to talk to them because it makes me look stupid. All right. I don't want to talk about transgenderism. All right, you know, you're, 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 you got me there, <laughs> right? Um, if he just doesn't say, you know, um, uh, you know, that he believes in any crazy conspiracy theory, I might be okay with that. Not, I don't even know what his policies are. I mean, I just seem <laughs> like an does. adult to me, right? Uh, and you know, I could live with that. Who is this? This is Bloomberg. 
Okay, I'm the I don't know what he publishes on. Yeah, he's a billionaire, yeah. and uh, he's running his own campaign, and he's not really a Republican or a Democrat because he doesn't need the party organizations, and uh, you know he, he's a self-made billionaire. So you know, it's not that I like you know somebody that I don't know very well, except under the conditions where I'm given Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, in which case I'd take what's behind door number three. Um, that's just me. Right, we'll see. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, can we get into the, the science of vocation? Uh, well, we'll do that next time. Oh, I'll finish off. Yeah, so last thing I'll say is um, the last paragraph is sort of the most quoted paragraph out of yes. the whole reading. It's like the politics is a strong and slow boring of hard boards. And then at the end of it, he talks about um, how only he has the calling for politics who is sure that he shall not crumble in the world from his point of view, which I thought was really important. is too stupid or too base for what he wants to offer. Only he who in the face of all this can say, in spite of all, has the calling for politics. So basically, you can look at the world, you can see it's absurd, it's base, it's stupid, but if you still have you know, some passion, like some you know, reason, some telos for wanting to make the world a little bit better, then you have the calling for politics. Otherwise, mm. you don't. So it's a very sort of um, Kantian Go for, Go for it. What do you mean, go for it? You. Maybe, <laughs> um, but yeah, but it, it, it's a really it's a, it's really interesting, and it's this is sort of what animates Europe in the wake of World War Two is this sort of like this pragmatic um, yeah, technocrat because this this is what this leads into is pragmatic technocracy, and that's right. This works well as long as the economy grows, but then once the economy fails, this as it inevitably right, does. Right. If your legitimacy is based upon your increase in just gross domestic product, um, you have a real danger. Sooner or later, the business cycle is going to turn unfavorable, yeah. and then your regime is in danger. Mm. Right, so then you need to start a war um, to keep people's mind on the fact that you're not producing <laughs> uh, the butter that you pr that you said you would. You, you give them guns instead. Um, here's a, a question that, uh, that I want to address next time. All right, when we do science as a vocation, right? Um, the German word Wissenschaft which is translated as science, right, um, doesn't overlap the stuff, exactly the stuff that we mean by science. So lots of the disputes in intellectual circles about the scientific status of various kinds of disciplines, like, for example, psychology, or like political science. Economics. Right, economic. Well, economics comes pretty close. At least they managed to quantify it, right? The, well, I, I mean, have a, I have a <laughs> there's a, there's, well, there are degrees of hardness and softness. Among the soft sciences, economics is probably the hardest. At the far end, where it's kind of like vapor soft, where, where it's sociology or anthropology, I mean, things that really are just, you know, and then the various studies. Well, yeah, and then, then the uh, victim studies disciplines of you where you find out how oppressed you are. That's what they're about. Like, I'm oppressed, and now, you know, what I'm trying to do is turn out people who think they're oppressed. Now, in fact, American college students are among the most privileged people on the planet. Are way, I've actually met people who are on the faculty of Princeton who thought they were oppressed. <laughs> you make $500,000 a year, and you really don't have to work, or at least not in any of the usual senses. How you got the idea you're oppressed, I have no idea. But no, Toni Morrison thought she was oppressed. I was in this. She and I were both in the uh, uh, Humanities Council, Princeton, and she 
She went on for some time. You won the Nobel Prize for literature. How do you get the idea that you're oppressed? What would it take not to oppress you? I mean, I, I just don't understand. I mean, if, if there were men who breathed in your general presence, maybe. Right, yeah, okay, well. Uh, so you make me feel like the other. Uh, uh, here's the deal. All right, I want to talk about Weber next time, right? And I want to talk about Wissenschaft, but I also want to show you, I think, how political party systems work, which is sort of cool. And I'll show you why um, we have the spectrum of ideology that we do either narrow or wide. All right? You good for that? All right. I will see you then Thursday at a civilized hour. I teach at 8.20 in the morning, which is not a civilized hour. All right, I'll see you all then. Oh, good God.